Looking with me at Matthew chapter 23, and we'll begin reading at verse 5. I was blessed this morning to see, was it all of your family here, Pastor? Was that awesome? And to see them in church with us, and I, I know how much it meant to to pastor and first lady to see them here with them and some are back again today and that is so good are they all back today are all of your family back tonight okay some of them are back good good so good to see you again and we love and appreciate you your father is just dear to our hearts and your mother is precious to us and we love and appreciate them as a pastor why don't I want to Praise God. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has been speaking to the disciples and to us and declaring that we should not be as the scribes and Pharisees, saying that they are all about pride and about their reputation, etc. Verse 5, but all of their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad the phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. <laughs> but be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Now, them first few verses were easy to receive, I think. But verse 9 is a little tough. Call no man your father upon the earth. For one is your father, which is in heaven. And I'm preaching about daddy issues. Daddy issues. God bless you so much for standing and worshiping and giving your energy, even... As close to Hades as we are tonight, and, and for your tremendous worship and praise, amen. Daddy issues is an informal phrase that is speaking of the psychological challenge resulting from an absent or an abnormal relationship with one's father. So there are certain things that fathers should provide for their children. I think number one on the list should be a father should provide unconditional love. Not just that they have that, but their children know that. That doesn't mean our children always do things that we're proud of and they're always doing the right thing, but even when they do things that they don't deserve, if you should say love, they are loved unconditionally. They're our children. A father should provide food, housing of some sort, proper teaching, should provide good, proper discipline for our children. Fathers should protect the well-being, that's physically, emotionally, and absolutely spiritually, protect the well-being of his children. A father should teach good work ethics. That's been forgotten in the last two years. Fathers should spend quality time with its children. 
should give wise counsel. On and on and on the list could go of what a father should provide for his children. And when fathers fail to do these things in relationship, deficiencies show up in children that become landmark battles and challenges for the entirety of their life. This is such a desperate need within all of us that if we did not get that father figure like we needed to, we are desperately searching for that for the rest of our lives. Looking for an uncle, perhaps, that would be a father figure or a big brother program, somebody somewhere, a kindly neighbor down the street, a pastor, perhaps, That would be a father figure in our life, and we desperately look for that. It has been said that sometimes young ladies with daddy issues will actually marry their daddy. Not physically, but they will seek out an individual that's more of a father figure in their life than is actually a lover or a husband to be in their life. This is a destiny, a recipe for disaster. You need to let your husband be your husband, not your father. Just thought I'd throw that in there for free, actually. And so we need to understand how desperate it is and to the length that people would go through. Emotional battles often are traced back to daddy issues. Depression traced back to daddy issues. Anger often traced back to daddy issues. Fear and many of these issues linked to daddy issues. Suicides often linked to daddy issues. These are the problems and the feelings that we have that come from an absent or an abnormal relationship with one's father. If you happen to be one that enjoys perhaps documentaries about the dregs of our society, when you begin to trace back serial rapists or mass murderers, you'll find almost without fail big-time daddy issues in their life over and over. Many characters in the Word of God demonstrate this psychological challenges. And as you study, it becomes obvious. I I would submit for your reasoning today that the very first man born to mankind dealt with daddy issues. Cain. Cain dealt with angers, rebellions, not, not just on a small level, to the level that he killed his brother Abel. Probably daddy issues. Now, if anybody has an excuse, I'm going to give Adam just a little bit of an excuse here because he created a full-grown man, never known what it was like to be a child. He also never had a physical example of a father in his life. So if anybody had an excuse, maybe Adam does. I think growing up in the Garden of Eden should have taken care of some of that stuff. Daddy issues. Look a little further, you'll find two girls called Lot's daughters. And the perversion by which they give themselves, even bringing children to this world that were sired by their father, by their father, shows you obvious daddy issues. Jezebel, who is trying to take positions and authority and power that is not her. Somehow you see in her life that she is desperately trying to live up to maybe some kind of respect and some kind of love from a father figure that couldn't give that to her. 
in the New Testament, I believe that Mary Magdalene herself had daddy issues. She who was delivered of seven possessions and seven infirmities. But what got her into that situation? Probably, probably daddy issues. David himself, the youngest of them sons, was not given approval and respect by his father, Jesse, when Samuel comes to anoint him to be the next king. David absolutely deals with daddy issues, and you see it in his psalms over and over and over again. But the character I see it so clearly in is Jacob, who was born the second of twins. And when Esau, his brother, was born first, the Bible said that he was... As a baby brought forth from the womb immediately, red complexion, ruddy all over, and covered with hair. Like Brother Gaston, every inch of me is covered with hair. Some of you don't know who Brother Gaston is, but you can ask Pastor when you're asking him about the phrases he was asking. And Daddy must have been thoroughly pleased with Esau. <laughs> I have brought into this world a man's man and he's still an infant. And Esau lived out that expectation. A man of the fields, a hunter, a man's man. Jacob, not so much. I think Jacob probably puttered around the kitchen 10 o'clock in the morning helping his mama because he's a mama's boy. Go outside and freeze my tail off to hunt deer? Not me. Jacob is different. And because of that, his father Isaac doesn't show him the love, the respect. In fact, the only time that you find Isaac, his father, doing that is when Isaac is getting old and now he's blind and Jacob dresses up like his brother and he tricks his aged father into thinking that it's his brother. And when Isaac thinks it's his brother, then he loves on him and blesses him and speaks of powerful anointed things in his life. David lives out perversion. I mean, Jacob, rather, lives out perversion as you find him involving himself with not just two women, but two sisters. How crazy can that be? He has children from two other women that are outside of covenant. He is obviously. It's why he has to go across the brook one day and there he wrestles with the theophany of God and he declares, I will not let you go until you bless me or change me because he cannot continue to be the same individual with the daddy issues that he's had all of his life. And when God changes him, it handicaps him physically but it also changes his character. If that's what God has to do, then touch me physically because I can't be the same man that I have been. I need to be changed. Everyone needs an experience of death in our life at a repented altar where we leave the old man in a buried grave of baptism and we rise to walk in a newness of life because we have to be changed. We have to have a new start. Daddy issues throughout the scripture, but as I read the word, it's easy for me to see because... I've dealt with daddy issues most of my life. 
my mom got in the church in San Bernardino, California, in a revival. In the same revival, a young man a couple of years older than her prayed through the Holy Ghost. They quickly began to notice each other and began to date. The pastor said, I think that we need to slow things down a little bit because both of you are brand new babies in Christ. You've got brand new lives. You've got brand new things, and let's just slow it. I'm not sure what they thought slow it down a little bit meant because in six months they were married. If you're curious, that's not slowing it down. Okay. Nine months from the day of their wedding, they had my older sister. She was born. I would come slightly over two years from that time, but when mom was still carrying me in her belly, her father committed suicide. He took drugs and alcohol, walked away in a temper fight with grandma. They found him three or four days later as he was in a ditch on the way to the bar where he was headed for more drinks. Mom never dealt with the death of her dad. She was a daddy's girl. Her dad was the closest thing that she had in this life to someone that loved her unconditionally. And she never dealt with it well. Pregnancy with me, I was born. I think I might have been a little bit of a handful. Just a guess, that's all. My dad was a night owl. And one night as he was working real late, he went to get some coffee. And as he was traveling below Sacramento, rainstorm came up. But he must have been asleep because his foot never left the accelerator. His car careened off the road and ran into a small tree. Seatbelt around his waist instantly broke and his chest crushed against the steering wheel, taking his life, and he instantly went on to his eternity. Mom was not dealing well with the death of her dad. And now with her new husband and two kids and didn't even know at the time, but she was pregnant with a child that she would bring forth in a few months. And now she is not grieving well at all. Compounded tragedies and deaths in her life. And she is struggling, doesn't know where to go for help. And this is the environment in which we were young babies at the time. Grandma told us that often, as we rode the city bus, Mom didn't drive, that I would get out from behind her eyes, watchful eyes, and walk down the aisle of the city bus looking at any tall man with dark hair and chubby fingers reached up to him calling him Daddy, wanting to be picked up. Even as a toddler, I was desperately looking for something in my life that I was missing. Father figure. Meanwhile, all the way across the U.S. of A. in Georgia, we were in California, in Georgia, there was a man that had gone through a rough upbringing of abuse in his life. God did wonders for him, and he married a lady, had two children, and then she got cancer and passed away. And so somebody, I believe it was a pastor friend, heard about these two situations and thought that it would be a good idea to connect them. And let me just say this. They had a lot in common, but neither one of them were healthy in their emotions. 
They weren't grieving well. Man, that would be my stepdad, did not grieve well. He came out of an abusive upbringing, and because of that, he held so many things back and wasn't, wasn't open and vulnerable to anybody in relationship. My mom is dealing with the two deaths of the closest people in her life and not dealing with it well. Her, her mom got cancer around this time, and grandma's dealing with cancer. All these things are going on. And so these two individuals from Georgia and California began to date Dad flew out one time. I'll call him Dad. He's my stepdad. He flew out one time to see her in their dating time. The second time he came out was the day before their wedding. So most of their courtship was not by telephone because they had landlines at the time, believe it or not. But it was so expensive to call long distance from Georgia to California back in the late 60s that a 30-minute phone call could be 100 bucks. I mean, it was expensive. 100 bucks was a lot of money in the late 60s. And so they wrote letters, snail mail, as we would say today. And they'd get a letter and sit down and write it back, and this is how they dated. Grandma, had a, I think that she just loved telling me stuff like this, but she said, you know, Tim, you were never introduced to your stepdad until after he was married to your mama. Again, I, it might have been a little bit of a handful. I don't know. I'm just, just guessing here. But it's a strange thing for them to courtship and date and get married. And then someone said, oh, by the way, hey, meet your new stepson. This is Tim. My dad was unsure. My stepdad was unsure how to manage a blended family. And any time that there was arguments and fussing and fighting, it was always disunity and division. It was, it was your boy did this and your daughter did that and this, and it was just division. We were never allowed to speak the name or to ask questions about our real fathers or my stepbrother and sister could not ask about their mother, their birth mother, because when that was brought up, it was hurt and pain that was never dealt with. So there's no asking what my father was like, what he would say. And even pictures were hid until late in our life and we had no idea. I remember growing up thinking, if my dad was alive, he, he would think I'm awesome. He'd believe in me. He'd want to throw the ball with me. We'd go fishing. All the things that my stepdad either didn't have interest or didn't have time for. I... I I remember the first time that a grown man told me he loved me. We were in a prayer meeting. Brother Feesman came over, big, broad-shouldered man, tears in his eyes running down his face. He wrapped his big, strong arms around me and said, Tim, I love you, and it messed me up. My first thought was, what kind of pervert is holding on to me here? But something was welling up in my heart. I know he means it. Look at the tears. Struggling to get out of his arms. He was surprised as he let me go. And I ran over to a corner. I'm 15 years old. And I'm trying to understand, God, what is this in me? How come does it even matter to me? What is going on? And never, ever having felt that before. I absolutely gave myself to things of the party life. And I fancied myself a player. 
but I was searching to feel like somehow someone would believe in me and love me and expect that there would be value in my life. I dealt with this and the things that I struggle with. Classic, classic diagnosis of daddy issues. I have a tremendous hope from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For the scripture says that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. That lets me know it doesn't matter what kind of dysfunctionality and hurt and brokenness that I've been raised in. There is a Jesus that not only loves me, but he feels the very feelings. He thought the same thoughts that I thought. He went through the same emotional battles that I went through, and he came through victorious. It's enough to say he loves me anyways, but to know he dealt with what I dealt with, felt what I felt, struggled with the thoughts that I struggled with. I've known this verse all my life. Haven't heard it from the time that I was just a little kid raised in apostolic oneness churches, but I've never seen that directly related to me, so I began to search this. Where is the daddy issues that I see that's the stuff in my life? Did Jesus deal with that? Yes. Now, I'm going to have to take you on a very non-traditional look, but I promise I'll be biblical. The first thing that we find about Jesus is that he was conceived out of wedlock. Now we all know that what was in Mary is of God. But they didn't believe that then. In fact, the man that she was engaged to decided he didn't want the baby and he didn't want her. That's true. He wanted to put her away. Get rid of her. Get rid of the baby, get rid of her. And it's not until God gives him a dream and tells him, you need to marry this woman. What is in her is of God. That now we find Joseph marrying Mary. But I think that we have traditionally looked at this and thought, oh, well, you know, he's jumping up and clicking his heels. Yippee! Maybe not. Maybe he resented the fact that he had to muddy his reputation with a woman that probably cheated on him in their engagement. Now there's an assumption there that Joseph struggled with the dream from God. But I think I can show you that that must have been true. How many of you have had a dream or a prophecy or a word from God and sometimes you struggle with, was that God? Maybe Joseph was thinking I had too much pizza the night before. Sometimes he probably struggled with, is this God that gave me this dream? In fact, later in life, the scripture makes it very clear that the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus, that is those that were born in the family to Joseph and Mary, did not believe that he was the Christ. They did not believe in his ministry. My question is, where did they get that from? Surely Mary hid these things in her heart. The scripture tells us that several times. But probably it was Joseph that expressed his doubt at different times. And even the half-sisters and brothers. He really was the, 
redheaded stepchild, right? Everybody in that family had a father that conceived them and a mother that birthed them except Jesus. He was separated and different from all of them. Luke 2 is amazing because the only reason that I can see that we would even get a glimpse into the life of Jesus at 12 is exactly what I'm preaching here today. And the Bible begins to say this, that they took a vacation down to Jerusalem. Now, Joseph must have been not only a carpenter, but maybe a businessman. So I'm assuming that he had a calendar to keep. He had a certain amount of days that he could go and then come back. And they were going to keep that schedule. And they're in Jerusalem. And now they're headed back home because he's got a timetable, a calendar. He's got to get back home. And wouldn't you know it, a day's journey back home, 12-year-old Jesus is not with them. Probably Joseph is angry. Mary is stressed. And she is worried frantic, like all of you mothers would be. Do you remember what it's like when you lose your child in Walmart for 15 minutes? Oh, my God, someone has kidnapped little baby. Sold him into sex trafficking, right? He's lying in a ditch somewhere bleeding from the head because somebody mugged him for 15 cents. That's what we all think because the panic that rises in us for our children. But this is not 15 minutes in Walmart and it's not six hours at Six Flags. This is a full day they cannot find him. So they retrace their steps. One day's journey back home is two days' journey back to Jerusalem because they've got to go everywhere they've been and ask everybody they saw, have you seen my 12-year-old boy? By the time it's been three days, right? Three days without their 12-year-old boy. By the time they get back to Jerusalem and they find him in the temple, she is out of her mind, Mary is. And we always love this because the Bible said that he was astounding the leaders. The church leaders were amazed at the authority and the knowledge and the understanding that a 12-year-old boy had concerning the word and concerning the kingdom of God. Everybody is impressed, and we are impressed. Who's not impressed? Mama. In fact, when you read Luke 2, you'll find her actually saying that. She actually says, how selfish you have been, Jesus. That sounds weird to say that. How selfish you've been, my 12-year-old boy. You thought about nothing but yourself. Why didn't you even think about us? Do you know how worried we were? That's what she said. And when Jesus responds to his mama, who he's put on this stress trip for three days, he doesn't say, oh my goodness, mom, I am so sorry. How can I not think about you? No. He didn't even say, my goodness, look how time flies when you're having fun. But what he did was rebuke her on two levels. And the first rebuke is, you don't even believe who I am. Now, I know Joseph might not believe who I am and my half-brothers and sisters might, but you are talking like you don't even believe. Don't you know I must be about my father's business? And the second rebuke is that man is not my father. She said, I and your father are worried about you. And he's saying, are you forgotten that he's not my father? 
I've got to be about my father's business. You're talking about daddy issues. Joseph must have been trying to be a good stepfather. And I imagine that he was raising him in the carpentry shop, trying to give him a career, right? And he was maybe saying things like this. It's going to hurt a little bit. Well, you know, your ministry, I know your call, but you might need something to fall back on. Sometimes what that says is I'm not sure you're really called. Maybe it's just wisdom. I don't know. But he begins to declare to this son, stepson of his, you're going to need to learn how to sand that tabletop. We've got to sweep the sawdust off this floor. We're going to have to varnish it. He's trying to teach him to be a good carpenter. Now, I think Jesus hated carpentry. Because it's a reminder of a father in his life that didn't believe in his ministry and his calling. That didn't believe he was anointed the Messiah, the Christ. Let me show it to you. Jesus begins his ministry and he teaches about the kingdom of heaven by telling parables or stories about fishing, about feasting, about cooking, about sowing, about cleaning the house. Not once does he talk about a parable of carpentry. And he had to know it back and forth. I think he hated carpentry. It was probably a reminder to him of a father that did not really believe in him, a stepfather. It's not just Jesus at 12 years of age. As a matter of fact, I, I do need to share with you that the scripture is very specific that it says Jesus went home and grew in favor and maturity and wisdom, both with God and man. He dealt with his daddy issues. I hope that's not too hard for you to think that the flesh of God had some infirmities that he felt, some struggles. That, this is what Hebrews is telling us. But even in his ministry, it seems to be so glaring. Luke 14 and 26 declares this. Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father as well as others, he cannot be my disciple. Now, why, Jesus, are you saying that so strong? Why didn't you say it kind of like this? Hey, if you want to follow me, you might have to make decisions that your mom and your dad are not going to be happy with. No. He said, hey, are you a daddy hater? Yes. Okay, follow me. It, it's almost like when we were kids and we built the tree house out back, you know, and we painted that sign on the side, no girls allowed. Cootie givers, you know. What in the world were we thinking, right? And it was like, we're not going to let girls. It's almost like Jesus is saying, the only people that can be a part of my club is those that hate their daddy. Does it look that way? Not just one or two places, but multiple places. Mark 3 and, 3, 3 and 33, rather, is very interesting. For Jesus is in the time of his ministry. And as he's teaching and having ministry, 
Mary comes, his mama comes, his half-brothers and sisters come to meet him and to greet him and to be a reunion. And so somebody runs to him and says, oh, your mom and your brothers and sisters are outside. And Jesus said, family, that's not my family. My family is those that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. It's those that love the Lord and keep his commandments. Wow. Now, I'll just throw this in. So that, you know, all the other things that you're mad at me about already, you can put this on top of that. I was taught differently growing up. Because my pastor taught me this. He said, my family comes first. And then the church family is second. Now, there's a balance in this. But he said this, my pastor said, the reason why is because when I get old and cannot take care of myself, my family will be there to change my diapers. You won't. He was right about that. <laughs> so that was his reasoning. But this is what I began to see in the Scripture. That if you begin to let that family, your earthly family, be closer to you than your church family, you are doomed for hurt and trouble because they will not understand the choices and decisions and sacrifices and commitments you're making. But these brothers and sisters you have here of like precious faith will pull for you when you make sacrifices, will understand and hurt for you when you go through the trials. And that's your true family. Lead balloons going over. I understand that. Jesus in Luke 9, 59 is speaking to someone who wants to be the disciple of Christ. And Jesus tells him basically, you need to just right now pick up your cross, follow me. And the man says, well, you know, my dad's really close to death and we're so close. Let me just go back and bear. I will follow you to the ends of the world after that. We'll go wherever you want to go. Do what. And Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You know, how, how does that happen? He's saying the decision you're making is a spiritual decision. And all you can think about is carnal and natural things. Look so harsh. Tough. Over and over, we'll find, including our text, these different things. This looks like a contradiction in the scripture because even one of the Ten Commandments declares unto us, Honor your father and your mother. In fact, it's the first commandment with promise that if you honor them, so shall your days be long upon the earth. Jesus in the Gospels argued with those that tried to set aside that responsibility. And when they said, well, I've donated monies that you would think should be for my elders, my family, my mom and dad. I'm giving that to the church, so I'm excluded from that. And Jesus said, you're making traditions of none effect because this is not the will of God. So he's arguing it. So what is this strange contradiction that Jesus is saying, call no man on earth your father, and you got to be a daddy hater, etc., etc." What we need to understand is that when Jesus is making this statement in 23 and 9, he absolutely understands the Hebrew language. Although the language that he was speaking probably was Aramaic or Greek, there was an understanding. In fact, you'll find Jesus speaking Hebrew often. Even on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani. He understood the Hebrew language. 
Most theologians that I have found believe that the Hebrew language was given by God to his people. That's incredible. But when you begin to study Hebrew, you find how perfect it is. The Hebrew language is so perfect in its understanding of every letter. It is so perfect uh, in, 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 in math, in numerical understanding. And, and this makes no sense if all you know is English because English grammar has nothing to do with math. But every letter of the Hebrew language has its own definition. In English, A just means A. B just means B. But in the Hebrew alphabet, every letter has a meaning. Every letter has a numerical value. And when you put letters together to make words, each picture or definition of the letter forms a beautiful picture of what the word is. Each numerical understanding forms together to have complete revelation of what the scripture is speaking to. So the Hebrew language is very powerful. I believe given by God. Many theologians believe that. So when Jesus is speaking that, the disciples understand, most of them understand that he's speaking to here, that the word in Hebrew for father is what we transliterate ob, A-W-B, ob. Now, in our language, father only means father. But in the Hebrew, it is the absolute first word in their dictionary. Because the word means principal source, primary source. And everything descends from a primary source and a principal source. So you can understand why it also means father. Because father's beget. They have children that come from principal and primary source. Now there is an understanding in the Hebrew. It's more bigger than a Hebrew or a Jewish understanding. It is a kingdom. It is a heaven understanding. And it's simply this, that if you can trace back your lineage back to a principal source where there's power and anointing, everything that source is, you can be. Now, that makes sense as we think about it. If this is your source and it produces you, everything that the source is, you can be. This is why when you read your bread through the years and you get through Second Chronicles or even some of the Gospels and you read page after page of Jalubidai begets Sisibiso. <laughs> You're probably doing that. Skipping through speed reading. Because why in the world do I need to go that bijabi toe begot likike I mean, I. But the studying of that is very valuable as you know names and understand Hebrew letters, etc. But the reason why you see this is because the Hebrews understood this, and this is a heaven principle. If you can trace your lineage back to a primary source, where there is a power and authority. Everything that that is can be visited upon you. You can be. This is why they keep arguing with Jesus and they say, we, we have Abraham as our father because Abraham's blessed of God. We're blessed of God. 
Abraham's a friend of God. We're a friend of God. Abraham has covenant promises. We have covenant promises. That's why it's no difficult for them to say the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because if Abraham had the promise, the children have the promises and the grandchildren have the promises. And Jesus blows them away when he says, I could raise up of these rocks to be children unto Abraham. This is why. Four times in the Old Testament, this is the law concerning mankind. You'll find this in Exodus twice, in Numbers and in Deuteronomy. The Bible says that God visits the iniquity of the Father upon the children and upon the children's children into the third and fourth generation. There's no way around that, sorry. The iniquities of our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, we are born with the problems of their iniquities. And we are not islands. The choices we make of iniquities are visited upon our grandbabies and our great-grandbabies and our great through the third and fourth generation. But here is the hope that Exodus 20 and 6 tells us. That God also shows mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Do you remember that phrase? Jesus said, this is who my family is. It's those that love me and keep my commandments. And the scripture says generational curses are broken to who? Those that love me and keep my commandments. This is a phrase you'll see often in the Word of God, and it speaks about the family of God. Who is the family of Jesus? Those that love me and keep my commandments. So, in light of what Jesus is speaking to these in the Gospels, it makes it very clear. It's not so important anymore, the lineage that you can trace back to, how great they were or how terrible they were, or even if you didn't know your father. But if you can trace back to a spiritual rebirth, then that is your primary source. And everything that your father is, you can be. It's why you must be born again of water and of the Spirit. I was, I was raised in apostolic church services. Just a couple of days old, the first time I went to church. Two days old, that's when I got the Holy Ghost. Of course not. I cried and fussed like two-year-olds do. And finally, five years old, I received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Mama prayed me through in the altar. <laughs> I, I remember hearing the stories. Raised, apostolic, one God, Pentecostal. That's what I was raised. I heard the stories so many times until... Uh, well, when first-generation people were my Sunday school teacher, I, I would correct them. No, that's actually Noah that built the ark. Not Moses. That's a different ark of covenant, right? I, I, I heard Deuteronomy 6 and 4 from the time I first remember hearing. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I've heard John 14 preached over and over and over. I'm telling you, I was raised in this. 
But let me share something with you. There's a difference between understanding and revelation. Because I heard it all my life and had the understanding that there's one God. But I needed to have a personal revelation of one God. This is something that everyone has to have for themselves. And you don't get revelation by hearing it a thousand times in Sunday school or hearing all the preaching or listening or reading this particular book on oneness. You've got to position yourself before God where you are hungry to know him. I want to know you in the fullness of who you are. And this is where revelation comes. In fact, when Simon Peter speaks this revelation, understand he's a one God Jew. He's heard it all his life. And when he speaks this revelation of who the Christ was, Jesus said flesh and blood did not reveal it. It don't matter how many rabbis you've heard preach it, how many times. He said that's not how you received it. But this was a revelation that was given to you by our heavenly father. Every individual has to have a personal revelation. This is why we have third and fourth generations that were raised in this three and four and five generations that are leaving and joining individual churches that do not believe in the oneness of God. How could they do that? Understanding no revelation. Everyone has to have a personal revelation. In the seven mysteries of the New Testament, every one of these requires someone that will seek out and search out and hunger for these mysteries and revealing this of what Father does to us when we position ourselves to hunger and to know these things. So understanding this, I'm going to qualify one more time. I am a one God, apostolic, tongue-talking, Pentecostal. I believe in this message. I'm not confused. There is one God. His name is. I'm not confused. I want to qualify that over and over. However, I've received a revelation of understanding that has helped me. And this is what I've seen. We, oneness apostolics, are so protective of our revelation that we don't talk about God as our Father. In the Old Testament, understand God is not called Father. You find a couple of places in Psalm where David, the daddy issue guy, finds some healing and speaks about God as his Father. Then you'll find a couple of prophets. Isaiah begins to speak that. In fact, to me, this is one of the greatest revelations of one God is Isaiah 9 and 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. The He's prophesying about the coming Messiah that he would be the everlasting Father. So the Jews do not call God their Father, although we talked about it this morning. God wanted them to be his Son. So when Jesus shows up, begotten of God, Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary, and he starts talking about, well, God is my father. They are mad because father means principal source, which means everything that father is, son can be. Let me show you why this is true. In John 5 and 18, you got to see this scripture. 
John 5 and 18, the Jews sought the more to kill Jesus because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. That's their understanding. If you're calling God your Father, then everything that God is, you can be. That's why Godhead was headquartered in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing that Paul's talking about in Philippians 2 and 6, who said, in being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so here Jesus is blowing them away. But my question to you is this. When's the last time you heard a oneness apostolic preacher preach about the baptism of Christ? We don't preach about that because you've got to Dove like a Holy Ghost, Jesus in the water, and a voice from heaven that's the Father. We all know that God is everywhere present, and he can speak multiple times the same, but there's no problem with that. But we don't preach about it because we don't want anybody weak among us to be confused. And we're so protective of our revelation that we don't want to have anybody think that we're not oneness. So there's powerful healing of daddy issues because of Jesus that has not opened one blind eye and unstopped one deaf ears is being baptized. He knows no sin, but he's being baptized to fulfill the scripture. And the voice from heaven says, Behold my son in whom I'm well pleased. He's not done one miracle and father's well pleased. In fact, I've noticed this, that even when we read text where Jesus speaks about the Father, we'll read it the right way, but then when we go to preach, we change it from Father to God. If I'd have stood behind this pulpit tonight, and I'd say, would you pray one more time with me, lift your hands, Father God, that's right. You'd all looked at me like, he's in the wrong place. We don't say that, but it's Scripture. Why is this a big deal? Because we as oneness apostolics have a God that's a Savior and a Lord, but we have spiritual daddy issues. And there's things among us that you cannot pray in tongues enough to overcome. But if you know you have a father, you naturally overcome. And we're dealing with things and we wonder, how come someone can't get over drugs and alcohol? How come they can't lay down nicotine addiction? How come they're still dealing with depression? How come that they have perversions in their life? Typical symptoms of daddy issues. And what we say develops the paradigm of who we are. This is why it's so important. Because the number one positioning of our Father is that He is a giver. James 1 and 17 says this very plainly. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from every, every. There's no way to get around that. If you get a good gift or a perfect gift, it's from above, from the Father. 
And we, of course, pray for Jesus to give us gifts and the Holy Ghost to give us gifts. And we pray for an atmosphere where gifts would flow. Again, I understand oneness. I'm not confused. But the paradigm we have is that we don't understand that God is our Father. And therefore, we're asking amiss. Matthew 7, 11 says, You being evil know how to give good gifts. How much more so your Father in heaven good gifts. When I think about that and how much I want to give good gifts to my children and to my grandchildren, and by comparison, I'm being evil in the giving of my gifts, I know how much He wants to give good gifts to His children. He's a heavenly Father that wants to give good gifts, but we don't ask Him. See, here, here's the difference. In my family, my stepmom and dad decided to have two more children and bring two more into this dysfunctionality, right? But when these two were born, they were special. Because we were the reminder of hurt and confusion that was never dealt with. These were the reminder of a new start and the union of their love, etc., I watched my half-sister walk up to my stepdad and my jaw dropped and hit the floor when she said, Dad, I need $50. And I thought, what? But Dad didn't rebuke her. Do you know how much $50 is today? What are you going to use? That's what I expected. Dad didn't. Dad laughed, said something about her, hugged her. He got his wallet. He was tight as a drum, all right? He went to that secret apartment where he kept the big bills, pulled out a 50 and gave it to her, never asked her anything. And she smiled and hugged him and went off laughing. And I'm thinking, my goodness, I'd have been scared to death to ask him for 50 cents. The difference is she knows she has a daddy that loves and believes in her. I'm not sure my dad believes and loves me. I can't even ask him for 50 cents because condemnation, she'll ask him for the world. Our faith level will go to a new level and a new dimension if we would understand the revelation. Yes, there's one God. His name is Jesus. But we have a Father. God is our Father. And if we understand, He is our Father. If I gave a quick survey by lifting of hands, and I'm not, but I was to ask, how many of you, Holy Ghost filled, faithful saints of God, how many of you struggle with if you're really going to heaven? 75% of you would raise your hand and say, I struggle. Why? Because we think God is patrolling heaven and keeping people that make mistakes out. But heaven is a place our Father is preparing for us. And I'll tell you as a father, if I play, prepared a place for my children, I'd do backflips to get, I'd do everything I possibly could to get them in. But we don't think of God that way. Matthew 26 and 53 is very powerful. Because Jesus, understanding the relationship of his Father, said that I could pray to the Father and he'd presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. You want to know who sends angels in the time of trouble? It's those sons or daughters that understand they have a father who has angels. 
We know very little about angels because we don't know much about God as our Father. Luke 12 and 32, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. John 14, 6, I'll pray to the Father. He shall give, give, give you the comforter. Matthew 6 and 4, if you give in secret, your Father will reward you openly. You pray in secret, your Father rewards you openly. Matthew 6 and 6, Matthew 6 and 15, it's your Father that forgives. Mark 11, 25 and 26, it's your Father that forgives. And we ask Jesus to do this. And the Savior to do that. But over and over, the one that gives every good gift, every perfect gift, comes down from a Father above. In fact, when Jesus talks about the gift of the Holy Ghost, He said it's the promise. It's Father's promise. You know why we struggle to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost? It's because we think somehow there's a God that died for us, that it's such a precious thing He won't give it. No, it's the Father that gives the Holy Ghost, and He's already promised it to you because you're His child. In fact, the very basis of our communication with God this is the foundation of any time that we talk with God. Our prayer life should always be this. Jesus said, when you pray, say this. He didn't say, take this as an example. He said, say this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we don't pray that way. We've got daddy issues. And we've got things we can't get over because we don't understand that God is our Father. And we feel like we're victim. And we feel like we're condemned. And we feel like these situations that are addicting us, we will never. And it's all tracing back easily to daddy issues. I'm just even going to say this because I feel like we need to start thinking this way. The scripture says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But do we hallow the name? We speak the name of Jesus so casually. I love the songs, but we sing them so casually and just throw his name around. But I'll tell you what I was raised to understand. I didn't call my dad by his first name. I had too much respect And if we began to understand that God is our Father, there's going to be a hallowedness about speaking His name that gives, be that gives better faith to the authority by which His name declares. I've always said this prayer and then I've gone from thinking that somehow the shepherd was going to lead me and it was going to be this Savior that saved me and this. It's not about anything but our Father. It's your Father that is the one that forgives. It's your Father that won't lead you in temptation. Think about what that means when it's your Father that won't lead you in temptation. It's your Father that will forgive you. It's your Father. In fact, John says this in chapter 4, verse 23. The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. I can think of two songs that we sing that are truly songs to our Father. We don't think that way. 
We mentioned it in one of the songs today, and we'll mention it in this in passing. I've known you as a father, and then we quickly go to I know him as a friend. But we don't sing about God as our father. One song, he's a good, good father. The other song's an oldie. Heavenly Father, I appreciate you. But Jesus said, the Father seeketh worshipers. And yet when we worship, we don't worship Father. It's a paradigm that is keeping us from a level of faith and a level of understanding of deliverances and miracles and healings in our life that no amount of talking in tongues can do. It has to be daddy in our life. So what's happening here in our text? I'm closing. When Jesus says, call no man father, for you have one father that's in heaven. He's saying this. Call no man on earth your primary source of fatherhood. Because no man on earth can fulfill what you need as a father. Now I hope that you've not turned me off if you didn't feel like you had daddy issues at first. Because all of us have daddy issues. Spiritually. My wife was born the youngest of four children. And when she was born, she was the apple of her daddy's eye. There was never any doubt growing up that Lois hung the moon. Her daddy told her so. Anything she wanted, she asked him. They were extremely close. She, she had him wrapped around her finger all his life. But Lois would come to the altar in a deep move of God, would get up before his death and after his death, and she would come to me and say, I'm struggling because I feel like I'm missing my daddy. I'm homesick for my daddy. And what we didn't know until this revelation, that even her with a wonderful, awesome Christian dad, he could not fulfill the things in her life that she needs. The old timers used to say there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every individual. It's like the last piece of a puzzle and only God will fit that last piece of the puzzle. And you can try drugs and alcohol and perversion. Nothing will satisfy you until you try Jesus. Old timers preached that. But by the same token, God put a father-shaped hole in every one of our lives and no earthly father can fulfill that. So even if your father was a great man, powerful Christian, he still was not created with the ability to provide for you everything that you need as a child. We all have daddy issues. I want you to stand with me. We're going to go two levels of altar here. In fact, don't, don't come to the music yet. Just you, You'd stay there, but nobody else come. Just stay there. First thing that we have to do is we've got to release our earthly fathers. Because even if they ask forgiveness, it's not going to. 
it's not going to do for you what you think it is. Probably they won't. They can't make up for it. Some of you might not even know who your father was. It's so difficult. Abnormal, absent. Some of you had great fathers, but still, you're recognizing some things in you. So the first thing that we have to do is release our earthly father. We've got to make this decision. I'm not going to require him to make up for what he did or to somehow apologize or to do that. You just got to let it go. He cannot fulfill that in you anyway, so just let it go. And if you'll let it go, there's a healing that will begin to come to your life. And then if you will look to God as your Father for everything that we need as His children, then there's going to be issues that we have dealt with that's going to be naturally healed because we pray to our Father, worship our Father, sing to our Father. I pray that what happens here today is not a message where a great altar service happens. I want that. But I pray that we think differently, that we pray differently, that we sing differently, that we greet each other differently, that we talk about how good our Father was in church service, and we speak about how the gifts that our Father gives, and we start changing the way we think. Let me share this, and I'm trying to be careful because these are friends of ours. The last two years... There's been a pastor friend of ours and a pastor's wife of ours who committed suicide. Holy Ghost filled, anointed, powerful people of God. Dealt with depression for years. Had Christian counseling, had pharmaceutical drugs, everything to try to help. And steal what I would still consider as one of the most selfish acts. Suicide. But here's the horror. I listened to our leaders at these funerals begin to say, you can't look at the last actions of their life, but you need to know what a great mama, what a great pastor's wife, what a great leader, what a great dad. And understand that we'll see them in the sweet by and by and in the Beulah land. I, I don't know where the scripture is for that explanation. But my fear is that what we're telling our young people that are dealing with depression in this, you just live for a little while in the youth group and then you commit suicide and it's about the life you live. That's, that's not. You know why we say things like that that I would say is just ignorant? Is because we don't know we have a father. And depression and suicide happens to people that don't know how loved they are and how special they are because their father loves them and that they're the apple of his eye and every hair of their head because they don't feel that. They don't feel that because they don't worship him. They don't pray to him, the father, they do We've got daddy issues that no amount of talking in tongues is going to get us over. But want to heal us and deliver us and strengthen us 
is a paradigm shift until we pray, Father. So my first invitation is this. Everyone here has daddy issues, but to those of you who really want to release your earthly father, no matter how good or how bad, if you really do want to release him from the things you feel like you needed, I want you to come and stand down here in this altar area. You're just going to release your earthly father. Powerful fathers represented by those that are coming down. Absent, abusive fathers represented by those that are coming down right now. Anybody else? Because we're going to work with these for just a few moments in the altar. Anybody else want to be a part of that? If you want to be a part but you somehow don't want to make your way, just follow as we lead those that are here in the place today. I'm sorry. Are my hands cold? I'm hoping that, you know, cold hands, warm heart type of stuff. Every time I minister, my hands get cold. I'm not sure what that is. Actually, it's awesome in the place today, Pastor. Cold hands. Dawn, you are driven. You want to excel. You want people to see that you have value. Because you have raised with a feeling that somehow the value wasn't there. And it's caused you to press and to push yourself. You are still going to be pursuing excellence, but not because you're trying to measure up or you're trying to prove this, but because you're going to realize that your Father is excellent. And because He is excellent, He's your primary source of fatherhood. You have a right to be excellent and even an expectation. So you're going to be loose from condemnation and the anxiety and the stress of trying to be perfect is going to fall off and you're just going to be your daughter's child. Come here, girl. Come here. Shayla. Please, please give me a moment to explain this. Shayla, you are so beautiful. Not because of any outward appearance, but, but because I see my Father in you. It's something about the passion that He has I see in you. And the authority that He has I see in you. And the strength I see. That's why I fall in love with you. And you and you and you because I see daddy in you. And I love him so much. 
It makes church problems difficult to even exist when you realize he's not my father. He's... And every time I turn around, I see him in you. Generational curses of past generations, even two and three, are broken from you because of the hunger you have to love God and to follow his commandments. And the children that God will bless you with is not going to have to deal with the same things because of the anointing that's upon you. Here's, here's. Okay, all those in the altar and those that will join me here, I want you to have a paradigm shift. And when you start praying right now to your father, call him father. No, no. some of you need to be so bold to call him daddy. Dad, for some of you it's going to be so difficult For some of you, because you can't even say that word without the hurt of what happened earthly to you. But others of you have been so trained not to call them that because that's what Trinitarians do. And the truth is, they don't have this revelation. They don't. Because you're going to move to a different paradigm shift. But when you call him father, when you call him daddy, don't pray like you've been accustomed to pray. But I want you to understand according to the infallible word of God, you are his elect. You're the most special person in the world. And your father dotes on you. You are the apple of his eye. You're talking about twisted around your finger. You're in the palm of his hand. No man can pluck you out. You are spe- you've got to come with that faith and understanding and start talking to him. So right now, call him daddy and just tell him how awesome it is to be his child and start asking him of things that you don't have any problem asking him because of how close you are to your heavenly father. I loose you right now by the power of the name of Jesus Christ to realize you have a Father and He's in heaven. You are joint heirs with Christ. Everything that God is, you can be. He's your primary principal source. Speak it and pray it in Jesus' name.